0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining exploration. I just and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, indigenous constitutional recognition. Those two
1: With Larissa Barrent. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. The people can mine!
2: This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Behrendt. Over the past week, thousands of Australians have taken to the streets in support of the Black Lives Matter campaign, with the death of African-American George Floyd in Minnesota, triggering protests against systemic institutionalised racism in the justice system. Nationally, the campaign has been used to highlight the rising number of Aboriginal deaths in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission, and tragically, over the same week, the revised number of deaths in custody had risen to 437. Joining me to discuss recent events and the issues that have contributed to protests are Indigenous Affairs Editor at The Guardian Australia, Lorena Allen. CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency Auntie Muriel Bamblett and human rights lawyer and principal solicitor of the National Justice Project George Newhouse. Auntie Muriel, why does the Black Lives Matter campaign and the protests we've seen nationally resonate so deeply with you?
3: I think it resonates on many levels, simply, you know, on a personal level, having lived in situations where we've been in poverty and dealt with racism on so many levels and and more particularly in my work life, seeing the injustices and being around when the Royal Commission came out into custody and looking at the stories and not seeing any traction and then hearing that over 432 people have died since that report was handed down. You know, it's just this constant in our lives. And I think the issue of racism in Australia really is so entrenched. It's entrenched in so many of the services that we work with. You know, I'm in child protection, and you see it. Why do so many children of colour end up in child protection and child welfare all over the world, not just in Australia?
2: Lorena, as a journalist who's been covering deaths in custody, what did the size of the crowds who turned out indicate to you and what message did you take from it?
4: Um, I was amazed at the size of the crowds. there, And the rallies are still going on. There's another one planned for Perth. So it's clear that there's an awakening in this country, maybe beyond, you know, well overdue, that this is a matter here that needs to be dealt with. I mean, we've published a story today that we did a rough count since 2009. There have been 13 separate inquiries at a federal level into Indigenous incarceration rates, hundreds of recommendations that have gone to various federal governments. So we're at a point now where people are frustrated that that does not seem to cut through and they want some change. They want radical change. And and the power of the protests is kind of being echoed around the world.
2: George, the Sydney rally was the subject of legal uncertainty with the New South Wales police force seeking to have it banned by the courts. What was the issue there? The
5: issue was whether there was a valid permit for the event. At the last minute, in the night before the uh, rallies took place, the New South Wales police attempted to stop it from going ahead and they challenged the permit. But The court really set the cat amongst the pigeons because they found that there was no permit and therefore they didn't approve the event, but they didn't prohibit it either. And it wasn't until five minutes before the event took place that two barristers were successful in overturning the judge's decision from the night before and made the event legal.
2: You were intending to go before that moment of the protest being declared legal. Why was it so important for you to be there in person?
5: Well, I suppose for two reasons. First of all, in solidarity for all the families who've lost members at the hands of police and in custody, but also, and more importantly, to support the families, the many families that the National Justice Project is working with.
2: Lorena, there was some criticism over the fact that the protests occurred while the COVID-19 restrictions are still somewhat in place. What did you make of this?
4: Obviously, the CMOs of the states and territories joined with the federal government in warning people that this might be a danger to their health, but people chose to go out on the streets anyway. Uh, in Queensland, at the rally, police were handing out face masks and organisers were handing out hand sanitizers. So I think that Crowds were broadly aware of their responsibility to socially distance, to be careful when they go home. People weighed up on the balance what was more important to them. And I certainly heard people say on the weekend, the system is killing our people and that is actually more dangerous to us than COVID-19. And they had made that decision on that basis. I also listened to ABC radio yesterday when the morning show were talking to people who, who live in the Blue Mountains here in New South Wales on the South Coast, the Central Coast, who all said, They were delighted that their businesses were booming, that people from Sydney were coming to visit for the long weekend. And there certainly were lots of crowds in in shopping centres. And the one that I was in on Sunday was jam-packed with people. And not not all of them were wearing masks and practising safe social distancing. So I think to call out the protesters as endangering the health of others somehow ignores the fact that many other people in New South Wales, at least, were enjoying that newfound freedom and may also have been... You know, not taking the right precautions.
2: What about you, Aunty Muriel? You're always so wise with these things. What were your thoughts on, obviously, the emotion and the passion within the Aboriginal community about these issues and, and of course, all our allies against the public health concerns?
3: Look, there's no doubt in my mind, I was very proud of all the people that marched because I think we've got a very passionate people and, and I personally made the decision not to make March because of my age, I'm so, being in that older and very really vulnerable group, but I watched every bit of TV and I watched every March and I listened to the words and I just love the passion of my people. I love the fact that our young people marched. I mean, I think it was dangerous and I know they made decisions, but at a time where there's so much, you know, hatred towards people of colour all over the world. I think we've got to stand up. And immediately when I heard of the tragic death of George in America, I just thought to myself, why does this keep happening? And, and I felt the urge myself to march. But I've been in quarantine for four months, and so I've not seen my grandchildren, I've not seen my own children. And so was a personal decision, but I've agonised, I've really agonised, and I think that there will be many more Aboriginal people all over Australia that would say if this was any other occasion, there would have been hundreds of thousands of Aboriginal people out in the streets, and I think that whilst we are in the worst time, it's the best of times for me because I see solidarity. I see our people now marching for what is right. I think the injustices of the past have to be addressed. I think we deal with institutional racism. We deal with all sorts of racism in our daily lives and whether non-Aboriginal people, whether people that or white, understand what that feels like and how the privileges it gives you and you honestly, are not born racist, but you can't help be racist if you don't understand what it's like to be a person of colour.
2: George, a connection was drawn between the death of George Floyd and David Dungay, whose family you've worked very closely with. Why was the comparison so poignant?
5: Well, not only was it poignant, but it was stunningly similar in that David had called out again and again to the officers, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, please let me up, I can't breathe. And the officers, both in Australia and in Minneapolis, said, oh, well, if you can talk, you can breathe. And they kept putting pressure on both men until ultimately they expired. And the Dungay family were moved by what they saw and they decided to take action. They couldn't believe the similarities and they drew the similarities to the attention of the Australian people. And suddenly, Australians woke up to what was happening to Indigenous Australians in custody.
2: These protests have brought into focus the number of Aboriginal deaths in custody since the Royal Commission. Lorena, you've explored those figures through your work with The Guardian Australia. Deaths Inside was a groundbreaking project that you led and was released back in 2018. For people who aren't familiar with it, can you tell us what it's about?
4: It began with my colleague Calla Walquist, who was covering the inquest into the death of Miss Dew under really horrific circumstances in the police lock-up in Robon. And she wanted to know how many Aboriginal people had died in prison and police custody since the Royal Commission. While the Australian Institute of Criminology keeps those statistics and have engaged in a national monitoring project ever since the Royal Commission, those numbers are often a couple of years behind because they have to be you know, subject to their own rigorous checking. We wanted to set up a real-time database. And the other thing about the AIC is that they record deaths that have gone to an inquest and we knew that inquests take a long time and so there may be a lot more people that are dying in custody that are going without recognition in that lag between the statistics being collected and being released. So we set up this database and what it involved us doing was we took a 10-year time period from 2008 to 2018, and we read every single coronial report about an Indigenous death in police and prison custody in that 10-year period. For five years of that 10 years, from 2010 to 2015, we read every single death in custody coronial report, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, to give us a statistical comparison when we tracked across a number of data points, things like, was the person a sentenced prisoner or were they on remand, how old they were whether they needed care, was it provided, has the coronial inquest begun, is it over, how long did it take? Those sorts of things gave us a picture of what was happening in police and prison custody and and on the basis of that we published deaths inside. That database includes every death that we know of in police and prison custody since 2008. We've updated it twice now. In 2019 we updated it on the anniversary of its publication and then we updated it again on the weekend two weeks ago. We would have done it in, in 12 months. But we thought that given the, the interest and the attention that's gone on, we really should try and provide people with as much up-to-the-minute information as we could. So that's where Deaths Inside
2: began. What were some of the statistics that stood out for you? Well,
4: we found that most cases of deaths in prison and police custody involved government agencies not following their own procedures. And certainly a high number of deaths were the result of people needing medical care that wasn't given. That was much higher for Aboriginal women than it was for Aboriginal men. So what we found was that there is a pattern of systemic neglect happening in custodial states and territories. And that systemic neglect is what is killing a disproportionate number of Aboriginal people in prison. It's interesting this week, we've received a lot of questions from people who've gone into the database. Some of them have spent more time in there than others. Some of them haven't spent any time at all. But the most popular question is, why do you not acknowledge the fact that more non-Indigenous people have died in custody? That was never our intention and it is not the point. It is true that more non-Indigenous people die in custody because there are more non-Indigenous people in custody. But we only make up just under 3% of the population, yet we make up 27% of the prison population. So on that basis alone, it is clear that as a proportion of our population, we are wildly overrepresented in this country's jails and in its prison lockups. And that is the basis for our investigation.
2: Honey Muriel, we hear these statistics all the time, both in this area and in other areas that you work in, like child protection. Now, I was just wondering from your perspective, people can talk about these things in numbers, but there is a human experience behind them. What are your thoughts when you hear those statistics?
3: But there's no doubt that my mind goes to the level of institutional racism, systemic racism, and I think you think across the whole system, the touch points for our people with regard to child protection, if you think about juvenile justice, you think about the criminal justice, you think about family violence, you also you know, think about the courts and their treatment of our Aboriginal people, and so... There's no doubt that the further into the system, the further the overrepresentation. So what does that say about, you know, the systems that judge our people and assess our people? And so that's just the starting point. But a lot of the other things that contribute, obviously housing, unemployment, education all of the social determinants and even the well-being determinants our other people are overrepresented so it's just something that I think it's the injustice and how racism permeates every part of our society and I think that's what frustrates me most, you know, I work in welfare every day and we're constantly fighting systems and policies and governments that have set things up to work against our Aboriginal people. So I think that when we think about, you know, making change, we can think about what we can do in the justice space, but I just think racism and how it permeates every element of our society has to be addressed because we're living in it and we're breathing it. And I think that until we can feel that we we can get out of it more and unshackle the chains of racism, I think that Aboriginal people will feel, still feel oppressed, will still not be able to be seen in their own country, particularly us in their own country. This is in our country, and we're feeling like less than in our own country. And so every day I fight to make sure our children, our young people can fight for who they are, that they can feel strong in their identity, a connection to their land, that they have native title and that they hang on to the things that are really important. But quite often that's beaten out of us. And so I think, as I said, racism, institutional, systemic, all of those issues need to be addressed.
2: I heard a commentator say during the week that if you want to stop the number of deaths in custody, we have to stop putting Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. And I reflected on the fact that that's something, Arnie Muriel, I've heard you say many, many years, and I just wondered if you um, had any additional reflections on that.
3: Look, there's no doubt. I mean, the correlation between the numbers of Aboriginal women that are in the justice system and men, and we're working with a number of victims, you know, with the redress scheme and with stolen gens that are in the prison system and so the relationship between mental health and people on the street that are homeless and so all of these. But it comes from a system that doesn't see us and didn't see us, particularly when we had the stolen generations and when many of the harsh policies were enforced upon Aboriginal people and we're still living with those policies now and so our people are still fighting to break the shackles of welfare dependency around being considered less than and living I guess in the poorest situations and so from our point of view yes we address systemic racism every day but child protection is critical we still have a significant overrepresentation, and I keep drawing the correlation between Child protection is a system. It is a system that's similar to a criminal justice system. We take children away from families and, yes, in many cases it's in their best interest, but it is a system that churns out children that, you know, with mental health or are likely to go into juvenile justice and the criminal justice system. So from my point of view, it is the system a good mother No, it's not. And so we need to work out how do we actually work better with families. And that means challenging the systems that move to remove children very quickly and be able to restore confidence and faith back in our communities that we are good families, good parents. And you know my data, I always say 80% of our families are doing well. It's the 20% that everybody seems to focus on and judge us as being really bad parents and not caring about our children. George, I mentioned your connection with the
2: Dungay family and representing them earlier, but you've represented the families of a number of Aboriginal people who've died in custody. Have you observed any trends and similarities between the cases you've overseen?
5: Look, I'd really like to follow up on both Lorena and Auntie's comments earlier. A death in custody is the pinnacle failure of a system, of the entire system that is racist. And it's not just... Corrective services or police or child removals or the justice system. It's also health. They're often seen as benign by non Indigenous people, but healthcare can be racist too. And a debt in custody is the pinnacle of all those multiple institutions and their failure in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So I see a death, you've asked me, what are the similarities? The similarities are that the systems have failed Indigenous Australians at every point, and a death in custody is the final failure of the system, except there's another insult often, and that is the coronial system. The justice system has one more go Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and re-traumatising them through the coronial process. So I think we really have to look at racism right through every institution of government if we're going to address these
2: problems. Can you speak a little bit more to the challenges Indigenous families face when dealing with the legal system when something like this has happened within their family and just the challenges around them attempting to get justice?
5: Look, it varies around the country. Some states are more progressive than others, but in many states, there are numerous indignities uh, that are meted on indigenous people. They don't get told what's going on by the institution when their loved one dies. They usually find out late. When they do find out, the coroner's often got a hold of their loved one's body and they don't always, in fact, really respect indigenous kinship and other spiritual practices And then the coronial process takes years, they're kept in the dark, they hope for justice and once again they're often bitterly disappointed and in the 230 or so years of colonial history of Australia, not a single official has been charged and convicted of a death in custody. So they have very little faith in the system.
2: Lorena, we've seen, obviously, a focus on deaths in custody since the Royal Commission. It itself investigated 99 deaths. Before then, the point is often made by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, there were many more deaths in custody and in different circumstances. You've also explored Australia's history of frontier massacres. Where does that history sit, given where we find ourselves today, and what do you see as the links between the two?
4: Well there's a direct historical link and in fact the most recent massacre in Australian history happened in Coniston in the in 1921. There are people still around who remember that. There are people in Borrolula who remember fleeing from white men shooting at their families. So this is a very recent history. So and I mean, we found from our research for the massacre project that police were responsible or government forces and government agencies were responsible for the vast majority of frontier killings. They're also responsible over time under the protection legislation for removing Aboriginal children. So the relationship with the police is deeply toxic and has gone back to the very first point of colonisation. So when we talk now about racism in the justice system, there is a long line and a long unbroken line, I would argue, between what happened then and what is happening now. And in fact, there were times in our recent history, I'm talking about the the 20th century, that the uh, mass killings of our people perpetrated by government forces was overlapping with the sort of issues about police and custodial issues that we're talking about now.
1: You're listening to Speaking Out just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio.
2: You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Tonight we're bringing you a special focus on the impact of systemic racism on First Nations communities in Australia. The recent death in custody of African-American man George Floyd in the U.S. city of Minneapolis has been the catalyst for anti-racism demonstrations worldwide. On our shores, thousands of protesters have taken to the streets in our capital cities and around the country to highlight the increasing number of black deaths in custody since the 1991 Royal Commission released its recommendations. In the past week, the revised number of deaths in custody had risen to 437. Joining me in the conversation this evening are CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency Auntie Muriel Bamblett, Indigenous Affairs editor at The Guardian Australia Lorena Allen, and human rights lawyer and principal solicitor of the National Justice Project George Newhouse. Auntie Muriel, obviously the Royal Commission has provided a pathway forward, but it's been largely ignored. As somebody who's really tried to work within the system to make change, what do you see as some of the primary roadblocks to the implementations of the recommendation, which on paper seem to make a lot of sense?
3: look, and I think our people are the most resilient and we live in hope all the time. Every time a Royal Commission hands out its findings, we're so convinced that they're going to actually do something this time. I remember when the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths was handed down, my husband, Al Bamlett, actually went into Parliament to fight for funding for justice agreements and they got the historical first funding agreement signed by the Commonwealth Government at the time. And he was so proud of that work and he absolutely believed that this was going to change the way the whole country would, you know, react and respond and come up with responses through a justice agreement. And each of the states and territories committed to those. Very few states now have a justice agreement. I know that we have one here in Victoria and we work across the whole justice system. But it still didn't prevent, obviously, the tragic death of Tanya Day. And What it says to me is that we're not treated as human. I mean, Tanya Day was treated inhumanely. If those police actually thought of her as a woman, as someone that could be the mother of their children, would they have treated her like that? But just the fact that they could treat an Aboriginal woman like that, just leave her sitting in a mattress and not check that she was okay if that was an Aboriginal woman that was being managed by an Aboriginal organisation... I would say that they would have sat with her, would have made her a cup of tea, would have made sure she was okay, She was not being unruly. And I think that that's the level of respect that we show. And I think that, you know, countries are moving now towards Aboriginal people taking greater control of custodial settings, of taking greater control of, you know, managing our people whilst in institutions and systems. And I think that that has to be something that is a beginning step for this country because in Victoria at the moment, we've taken on guardianship of Aboriginal children. We've already seen that since I've taken on guardianship, the numbers of children that are staying safely in families and communities has significantly increased. So I think as Aboriginal people as well, we've got to challenge ourselves as to what we can do to also stem the tide of removal of our people going into the system and how do we take greater responsibility for a justice system that doesn't work, that dehumanises us. George,
2: Arnie Muriel talks about empowerment. She's obviously a strong advocate, always has been of the principle of self-determination. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work you've done around Copwatch, which is really about giving more power to Aboriginal people in relation to policing practices.
5: Yeah, look, I don't think we would have seen... 20,000 people or more out in force in Sydney over the weekend. If people hadn't seen the images of George Floyd in his last moments, they are exceptionally moving. Vision does spur people to action and can be used as evidence to protect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from the excesses of the police. And we developed with Atlassian an app called Copwatch. It's available for free download anywhere in Australia, and it basically teaches uh, young people how to safely and legally film their interactions with police. They can film them for the purposes of advocacy or even for evidence. And the ability to do that can change the world, can change attitudes. If it comes down to a case where it's um, a young Aboriginal man's word against the police officers Nine out of 10 cases the police officers are going to be believed, maybe 10 out of 10. But video evidence can change the course of those cases and can change lives. And I believe that it's one of the major reforms that we've seen to our system has come from the availability of video evidence and Copwatch is just one of those ways that we can achieve it.
2: Lorena, obviously when there's video, there's a bigger story. Indigenous media has been covering deaths in custody all along, really, even before the Royal Commission. And it's certainly held vigils around key deaths in custody since the Royal Commission, and you've been involved in that. Is this a moment where the mainstream media are now starting to rethink their approaches, or is it really more of just a response to the fact that there are images now that make a good news story? What are your reflections on the role of the broader media in covering this issue.
4: It's true that Indigenous media have forever been telling these stories. We're at a moment now where, thanks to the efforts of Latona Dungay and her family, who have just been so brave and, you know, just standing up for Their son, for her son David. We've spent a lot of time with the Dungay family over the last few years. We did a podcast with them about David's death in custody. We've covered his coronial inquest. We have watched the arc of their disappointment over three years they have waited. They waited for the inquiry to be heard and then another two years worth of waiting for the results to be handed down. And to be with them on the day that they heard the news that nobody was going to be held responsible for his death was an incredibly traumatic thing. Now, when you think about this being replicated over and over again, to any number of other Aboriginal families around the country, hundreds of them, you can see how big this trauma is. Indigenous media honour that. And I think what we have always wanted to do is put in front of people the human consequences of this systemic Racism, this is killing people and it is causing an enormous amount of damage to the families, the bereaved families that are left behind who have to negotiate, as George said, an incredibly complex and alienating coronial system at the end of which they get no result. Um, This is happening to too many Aboriginal families. If it happened to non-Indigenous families, it would be a national scandal. So I'm really glad that there is a lot of mainstream media attention on this I'm concerned that there is already a backlash developing that people are attempting to discredit the veracity of these figures that somehow only 380 deaths in custody is somehow acceptable as opposed to the numbers that we put forward. It's odd that this is now the conversation that is going to be had in the mainstream media and that if that's the case I'd be, you know, incredibly disappointed. Having said all that, though, there has been some really good, strong and responsible reporting by journalists who are going to those figures and asking questions about what they say and what now needs to happen, how many reforms have been put to these governments over time and what they intend to do about them. My concern is about what happens next after the protest rallies are over. We need people to continue to maintain pressure for change I think what we're seeing in the United States, the defunding of the police department, our officers being held on criminal charges, those things could happen here if there was political will. And so I think public pressure needs to be sustained in order for change to happen. And that's what we're seeing happening in the US. I'd like to think that the allies of the Black Lives Matter movement and Aboriginal people here in this country would look to find ways that they can maintain their support for change to happen. And that's not just writing to your MP, it is getting informed, finding out what reforms can happen to law, and then trying to support those and push for those. So really simple things like amendments to bail acts around the country, to make bail more available to Aboriginal people who are predominantly arrested on minor offences, so they are not sitting in remand because all the studies show that Aboriginal people on remand are the most at-risk population in prison deaths. So those are things that people can get behind in order to push for more lasting systemic
2: change. Aunty Muriel, one of the levers that I guess has been mooted around this is talk of including criminal justice or justice indicators in the resetting of the Close the Gap targets. Do you think that that would be a way forward?
3: Look, I think in the close the gap discussions is obviously looking at as well some of the broader indicators that what contributes to the overrepresentation in the criminal justice system. But I think very definitely tightening up and getting a number put on that and looking at, like certainly NATSOLS, the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, have been. Absolutely in the room and, and pushing very strongly for really stronger targets, particularly around young people and juvenile justice, but also looking at women in the justice system, looking at the whole system. I don't think that at this stage that anybody's actually looking at the court systems and how they work. But I think the most disgusting thing I think that's come out of all of this is the ignorance. And I still think, you know, the prime minister saying words to the effect that Australia is not like America and that we don't have an issue here in Australia. And I think, you know, taking up the previous comment about the fact that at this stage, we do need to have more people come out and speak against this. Look, I'm a real yobbo, I go to the football. And, you know, for years, it wasn't safe to go to the football. But when the AFL made a stand against racism, the level of racism that Aboriginal spectators were experienced dropped. Dramatically, And, you know, the level of racism, even though it couldn't sort of stop the Adam Goods incidents, but everybody watching that would say that the level of racism in Australia has to stop. And I think Black Lives Matter has put a spotlight on racism. And I think that's what we've got to be able to fight. I think as Aboriginal people we're not as aggressive we don't display the same level of violence. We're probably more violent against each other than we are against you know systems and, and people that do the wrong thing and you know in America they're more likely to take legal action. They've got lawyers they've got people and we, you know we're very lucky we've got the media that can get get on the front foot and we're catching up but I still think that you know like we need to become much much more stronger in how how do we fight this level of racism and take it up to government? I don't think it's good enough that we have a Prime Minister that thinks that Australia doesn't have a problem, that we don't have racism. And I think that all of the deaths in custody are proving that and all of the injustices that are happening to Aboriginal people prove that we do have a problem in Australia. George, during a week when there was so
2: much focus on the issue of policing and the relationship with the Aboriginal community, there was, of course, a high-profile incident caught on video of a teenager being arrested in a very aggressive way that led to widespread public outrage. You worked with the families around that. Can you talk a little bit about that incident and what was, I guess, different now that there was a spotlight on this kind of activity, this kind of aggressive policing?
5: Well, what we saw was the image of a young man who was presenting no threat to a police officer, who was not resisting arrest. In fact, he presented his hands to the officer to put handcuffs on, taken down by having his legs kicked from under him And his face smashing into the concrete, causing him to have chipped tooths and damage to his face and knees. What was shocking was that it was filmed and the general population got to see what is going on every single day in policing Indigenous communities. And people were horrified by it, rightly so. But what was really interesting was the police commissioner's response to it, which was, oh, look, this is just an officer having a bad day. And I spoke out about that. This is not a bad day. This is systemic. And the key performance indicators of police are all about charging young people. That's what they get rewarded on. They don't get rewarded for diverting young people from the criminal justice system to appropriate services. They get rewarded for charging people and certainly charging them. And I spoke out and said, look, if if, if that's what the police commissioner thinks, that this is a bad day, then we have a systemic problem in New South Wales that starts at the top. And the police commissioner has been quoted as saying, I think everyone should be a little bit afraid of police. Well, I know a lot of people who are very afraid of police because that's what happens to them. And in fact, police should be a service to the community not a force, a police service. And they should be assisting youth and others to obtain appropriate services and diverting them from the criminal justice system. That's what they should be rewarded for. And then you would see a lot less of that kind of takedown that you saw on film in Surrey Hills last week.
2: Lorena, George and Arnie Muriel have both stressed the prevalence of racism in as an underlying factor in the issues that we're looking at. And a study released this week by the Australian National University found that three in every four Australians hold biases against Aboriginal people. What did you make of the report's findings? I didn't find
4: it surprising <laughs> not at all. I, I think you know I think it's interesting and important work to have done and it tends to confirm our suspicions. I mean, if you've grown up in this country, you know that to be the case. I mean, I was out on the weekend with my beautiful niece and we were followed around a shop. you know, like it happens to us all the time. So yes, I I think it's probably correct. There's no great joy to be had knowing that. But yeah, I, I, I do think we have a long way to go before Australians broadly become aware of the way that racism works as a system. You know, I think people have a very rudimentary understanding. They think racism is where a white person picks on a person of colour. We know that it's a system that works in various ways to keep Aboriginal people at the bottom of every rung of the socioeconomic ladder. We know how it operates. It's about Australians eventually coming to terms with that reality and wanting to change it And I know that we are all involved in in ways of trying to bring that to people's attention. So a study like that is really important foundational work, but it just shows you how much work is yet to be done.
2: There has been enormous support shown throughout the protests that have taken place over the last week and are still ongoing, a spotlight on the issues in Australia and calls for change. Lorena mentioned earlier a range of changes that she'd like to see from from the large to the quite pragmatic. Aunty Muriel, what do you hope comes out of this moment?
3: Look, I think obviously I think Australia has to sit up and listen but I think that there's always a danger. People, we march in streets, we put issues on the table, we've done inquiries, we do reports, we sit in committees and we, you know, invest in strategies all the time and it never really hits to the nub of the issue and everybody today has touched on the fact that it takes a whole of community. It is people that are going to make the change and how do we get a people movement to get behind this actually change it and it takes a whole of society to do it we can't do it just by changing the police because the police aren't the only problem if we don't look at the whole system and how the whole system works against I think we're seeing a change you see already things like respect for land and understanding the importance of land but then you know all of a sudden there's the Western Australian incident where they disrespect and they there there's no penalty. So I think for Aboriginal people, we want to know that this is really going to be taken seriously and that Australia gets behind it. As you spoke about earlier, the 67 referendum, you spoke about, you know, the importance of all of these significant times when people have made a conscious decision to, you know, work to the best interests of Aboriginal. But how do we get a movement that actually addresses... really big issue because I just don't think, you know, I would love to live in hope that the Black Lives Matter campaign and the work that we're doing actually can address broader than just the justice system and address the real issues that racism bring to the homes and to the lives of Aboriginal people within this country. George,
2: from the legal systems perspective, what changes do you hope come from this?
5: Look, I think the secret is in two documents, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the Uluru Statement. And people bandy about the Royal Commission recommendations all the time, but very few people actually understand it. I saw Ken Wyatt tweeting that 91% of the recommendations have been implemented. Well, these are qualitative, not quantitative uh, recommendations and they revolve around addressing the socioeconomic factors. You cannot tell me that 91% of socioeconomic factors have been addressed. It's just nonsense. The recommendations revolve around diversion from the criminal justice system. That's not happening at all. You're seeing more and more Aboriginal people come into the criminal justice system and be incarcerated and the um, Royal Commission recommendations include an acknowledgement of sovereignty and that hasn't happened either so anyone that says that 91 percent of the royal commission's uh, recommendations have been implemented needs to have a good look at those recommendations and then we'll start getting change and if australians start listening to the uluru statement hearing aboriginal voices talking truth you know exposing what's going on in our streets and then sit down and have a treaty as equals, we might see change.
2: Just finally tonight, one thing that strikes me as we talk through really difficult emotional issues that have a lot of personal tragedy behind them. That actually, it strikes me that each of you working in this area in different but complementary ways actually are optimistic of change or you wouldn't be doing the work that you do. That really comes through in in how you talk. And I was just wondering if you could maybe explain or, or tell us what is it about the world that we're living in that gives you hope? And I'll start with you, George.
5: Well, I I was so enthusiastic about the rally on the weekend because it was mostly young people, and they are our future, and they get it. The future Australians are looking to a better society, a more equal society, and have some empathy with our brothers and sisters. What you're saying, if you look back in our past, is 230 years of tragedy and trauma, but it's the young people that give me hope and I think they get it.
2: And what about you, Arnie Muriel? What, <laughs> through all the hard, cold face work that you do, what gives you hope?
3: Look, I think I'll build on with George when he was talking and I was thinking, you know, like in 1988 we marched and I remember the feeling then and getting a sense of, you know, it's not just my family and my community and where I live was living at the time in that community. I saw all of our people and I was so proud. And so the same thing happened on the weekend. And every time there is a march, I get this sense of, You know, they haven't been able to get rid of us. We're still here. We're still fighting. And so while there's an issue and while there's a cause, it gives me inspiration that our people are you know, have survived. But I just think that for me, the long-term and sustainable thing is just that, you know, to see us in this country, but not having to march for a cause to actually march for what it is that we've achieved. And I think NAIDOC is always, you know, a time where we march and celebrate who we are. So I have optimism that We, as a people, we've been resilient. That's been proven through COVID-19. I've seen so much community giving and sharing and doing things for others that our community, it sort of reinvigorated our community again to pull together and work as a community and talk to each other. And, And I think that we thrive off of these sorts of situations. So again, I think for me, it is about community revival, giving back the values and and the respects and the things that keep us strong. And I, I look to a future where we can still have many of those things embedded throughout our communities and our families and our societies.
2: What a great note to end on. Thank you all for joining me this evening to dig through some very challenging and deeply personal issues. My guests have been CEO of the Victorian Aboriginal Childcare Agency Auntie Muriel Bamblett, human rights lawyer and principal solicitor of the National Justice Project George Newhouse, and Indigenous Affairs editor at The Guardian Australia Lorena Allen, who unfortunately we seem to have lost at the end of the program. To take us out this evening, actor and writer Maine Wyatt recently appeared on ABC TV's Q&A program to discuss his personal experiences and frustrations around systemic racism in Australia. In it, he delivered this monologue taken from his play, City of Gold.
1: I'm always going to be a black friend, aren't I? That's all anybody ever sees. I'm never just an actor. I'm always an Indigenous actor. Hey, I love reppin'. But I don't hear old Joe Bloggs over here being called white Anglo-Saxon actor, blah blah I'm always in the black show, the black play. I'm always the angry one, the tracker, the drinker, the thief. But sometimes I just want to be seen for my talent, not my skin colour, not my race. I hate being a token, a box tick, part of some diversity angle. Oh, what are you whinging for? You're not a real one anyway. You're only part. Well, what part then? My foot? My arm? My leg? You're the blacker you're not. You want to do a DNA test? Come suck my blood. How are we to move forward if we dwell on the past? That's your privilege. You get to ask that question. As we can dance, and we're good at sport. You go to weddings, we go to funerals. No, 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 no. You're not your ancestors. It's not your fault you have white skin, but you do benefit from it. You can be okay. I have to be exceptional. I mess up, I'm done. There's no path back for me. There's no road to redemption. Being black and successful comes at a cost. You take a hit whether you like it or not. Because you want your blacks quiet and humble. You can't stand up, you have to sit down. Ask the brother boy Adam Goods. A kid says some racist shit, not ignorant, racist. Calling a black fella ape, come on man, we was floor and fauna before 1967. No, actually, we didn't even exist at all. But he got it, this was a kid. This was a learning moment, he taught that kid a lesson. But did they like that? A black man standing up for himself? Nah, they didn't like that. You shut up, boy, you stay in your lane. Anytime you touch a ball, we're gonna boo your ass. So Show he showed him a scary black, throwing imaginary spears and shit. And did they like that? Oh, no, no, no. They didn't like that. Every arena, every stadium, they boot him. It's because the way the flog plays football. Bullshit. No one booted him the way they booted him until he stood up and said something about race. The second he stood up, everybody came out of the woodworks to give him shit. And what, he's supposed to sit there and take it? Well, I'll tell you right now, Adam Goodes has taken it. His whole life he's taken it. I've taken it. No matter what, no matter how big, how small, I'll get some racist shit on a weekly basis and I'll take it. You know, it used to be that in your face, you bong, you black dog coon kind of shit. Gonna chase you down the ditch with my baseball bat skinhead shit when I was 14 years old. But nah, we come forward, we're progressive, we're gonna give you that small subtle shit. The shit that's always been there, but it's not that obvious in your face shit. It's that, oh, no, we can't be seen to be racist kind of shit. Security guard, following me around the store, asking to search my bag. They're walking up to the counter first and being served second or third or last kind of shit. They're hailing down a cab and watching it slow down to look at my face and then drive off. More than once, more than twice, more than once, twice on any one occasion. Yeah, that shit I'll get weekly. Sometimes I'll get days in a row if I'm really lucky. And that's the kind of shit that I'm letting them think they're getting away with. Because to be honest, I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered teaching their ignorant asses on a daily basis. I don't have the energy or the enthusiasm. It's exhausting and I like living my life. But then on occasion, when you call me on a bad day where I don't feel like taking it, I'll give you that angry black you've been asking for and I'll tear you a new asshole. Not because of that one time, because of my whole life. At least I danced, them danced and they still pissed and moaned. But it's not about that one time, it's about all those times. And seeing us as animals and not as people, that shit needs to stop. Black deaths in custody, that shit needs to stop. I don't want to be what you want me to be. I want to be what I want to be. Never trade your authenticity for approval. Be crazy. Take a risk. Be different. Offend your family. Call them out. Silence is violence. Complacency is complicity. I don't want to be quiet. I don't want to be humble. I don't want to sit down.
2: That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we'll take a detailed look at the challenges facing the peak community-controlled body in New South Wales seeking to address high rates of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care.
0: We know that involvement in the child protection system is disproportionately from lower socioeconomic families. They're families that are already vulnerable. Um, They're families that are struggling with mental health with addiction, with all of the kind of consequences of intergenerational trauma. And rather than offering the supports that are needed to address those things, we seem to have this response of going in and taking children away. And all that does is perpetuates this kind of cycle of removal and, and of trauma, rather than trying to really stop it and find a different way that's gonna be more sustainable in the long term.
2: With your considerable experience in this space, in your view, what would be the most effective strategies to address the continuing trend of increased removal of Aboriginal children and start reversing that?
0: So I think investment in early intervention is really important. But it's really important too that we don't just invest in any family support. We know that a key cornerstone of effective policy for Aboriginal communities, and particularly in the child and family space, is this idea of self-determination, of Aboriginal peoples working out what's going to work best for them. And we know that works best because they know their local circumstances, they know their communities, and they're able to shape their own aspirations and priorities if they're empowered to design these programs themselves. So I think first and foremost is investing in local communities to develop their own responses develop their own solutions and to build around that a really rigorous data system that allows communities to understand what are the impacts that their interventions are having so they're able to make better decisions year on year about how things are going and what else they need to do to make those things better. What's really concerning at the moment is something like 15% of the child protection investment in New South Wales is directed to family supports according to the report on government services which means that 85% of that funding is invested elsewhere.
2: Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.